You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 76, Intrauterine Insemination. IUI is another word for intrauterine insemination, and in this episode, I'm talking all about the basics, what to expect, and when IUI is best indicated. Listen now. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back. In this episode, I'm talking all about intrauterine insemination, otherwise known as IUI. This topic, this episode has been requested a lot, and I've talked about IUIs on and off in different episodes based on the diagnosis, but some people have just wanted a place to come and hear and learn a little bit more just about IUI and the basics. Okay, so first of all, IUI intrauterine insemination is exactly what it sounds like. It is inseminating, so putting the sperm inside the uterus, intrauterine. The reason it's called that is you could, in theory, put the sperm in the cervix or in the vagina. So when you have intercourse, sperm is deposited in the ejaculate in the vagina, and then the sperm has to swim out of the ejaculate and get into the uterus to eventually go into the fallopian tubes. Fertilization happens in the fallopian tubes. Now, it is not the same as just like taking ejaculate and putting it inside the uterus. It has to get cleaned. So the vagina is very acidic. And so the pH of the ejaculate is very alkaline in order to protect the sperm in that environment. And so most of what you see when a guy ejaculates is actually all the protective stuff. You can't really see this. You can't see the sperm. They're microscopic. And what they do is they swim out of that protective ejaculate and they get through the cervix, which is narrow and kind of twisty, into the uterus and then into the fallopian tube. I will start right here by saying that I am a big believer... Nobody should be doing IUI if you haven't proven that your fallopian tubes are open. And the way that you can do that is with an x-ray dye test called a hysterosalpingogram or an HSG. This is a simple test where you go in and it's like a pap smear meets an x-ray. That's how I always describe it. A speculum gets placed in the vagina, a small catheter goes into the cervix, Dye gets injected into the uterus and you can see the triangular inside of the uterus and then dye will move through the fallopian tubes and show that they are open. It is a very brief test. It doesn't take very long. It does cause a cramping. Most women describe it like a period. But I can do 1,000 million IUIs and if your fallopian tubes are not open, there's a 0% chance you're going to get pregnant. And I almost never say that there's a 0% chance of anything. This means we need to know that this treatment is indicated because if your tubes are blocked, you need IVF or InvoCell or something that's taking the eggs out of the body and fertilizing them outside the body and then putting an embryo back inside. So IUI is kind of a low tech option. What it is simply doing, the analogy I always use is taking your best players and putting them further down the field. I can't make them make the shot. And that's so important to understand that there is by no means a guarantee. Often, often, almost always, couples think IUI is boom, it's just going to work. And they're devastated when it doesn't work the first time. 
And most of the time, most of the time IUI doesn't work. You guys, the probabilities of IUI working, it's usually not going to work. And so breaking down and setting appropriate expectations and understanding who is a good candidate for IUI and who is not is really helpful when you try to decide what the best treatment is for you. And so having the diagnostics complete, that's essential before deciding that you're going to do an IUI. So just prancing into the doctor's office and knowing that you're going to do an IUI, that may not be the best course of action. So in simplicity, let's just think about what IUI is. IUI is using a fresh ejaculated sample. So male partner will ejaculate, the sperm gets cleaned. Essentially, that means in the processing, the ejaculate, the alkaline ejaculate gets taken off. And then a concentrated sample of the sperm gets loaded into a catheter. And then that's what will go into the uterus. You can also do IUI with frozen sperm, whether it's frozen donor sperm or frozen partner sperm, in which case it's often already washed and ready to go. Either way, you're going to get it all into this catheter where it's a very low volume. Also, just technically thinking about IUI before we dive into diagnosis and success, it, it doesn't hurt. I mean, speculums are never comfortable, so I'm not going to sit here and say it's, it's a walk in the park. But really, it feels like a pap smear does. So don't be nervous. Don't be expecting it to be painful. The actual putting of the sperm in the uterus, most women barely feel or feel something very mild. Okay, and just some other logistics. So you can do IUI in a natural cycle, which means you ovulate on your own. You can do IUI in cycles where there is ovulation induction. So these are medications such as Clomid or Femara, that can be used in order to induce you to ovulate. You can also do IUI cycles with gonadotropins, which are injectable hormones such as FSH or LH. So essentially you can combine IUI with either just your regular cycle, so a natural cycle, or with an induced cycle. And then you can have partner sperm, so fresh sperm, or you can have frozen sperm, which can be either partner or donor. Let's just think through a few factors about doing the IUI. Um, when you do a natural cycle, typically you're wanting to monitor your ovulation. And so that is most often with ovulation test strips or OPKs, ovulation predictor kits. For these OPKs, what you do is you pee on the stick. It's detecting LH, which is the hormone from the brain that is causing the surge that will subsequently induce ovulation. LH is released from the brain in the early morning. So the best time of day to check the ovulation kits is going to be from about 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. There are cases where if you always check in the early morning because you're an early riser like myself, you may miss your surge, meaning it may not be in your urine yet when you take the test, and then the next day it may already be excreted. So I always recommend using that LH test strip in the middle of the day so you make sure you don't miss a surge. The surge is LH surge. It's not ovulation. So when you're timing based on a natural cycle, you want to have the IUI the day after the positive OPK because the day after the positive OPK is the day that you're ovulating. If you are doing a natural cycle, your doctor may want to bring you in for an ultrasound so you can check to see how a follicle is growing or they may base it totally on ovulation kits. To each their own, there's no one way fits best. If you're doing an induced cycle, it may depend. So again, these could be oral or injectable hormones. You may still check with OPKs or you may do a trigger shot. 
So when you do a trigger shot, you are actually trying to time things perfectly. And so you're trying to determine when you're going to be ovulating before you actually naturally surge. The trigger shot is HCG. HCG is very similar in structure to LH. And so it binds to the LH receptors and causes the LH to be released. That's kind of the bulk of what needs to be known. So it induces a surge. When you do a trigger shot, typically you want to do the IUI about 34 to 40 hours after the trigger shot. And that is because no matter how it comes out, when the egg comes out, egg is released from the ovary and it is picked up by the fallopian tube. Egg and sperm, here we go, they meet in the fallopian tube. That's, that is where fertilization occurs. And the egg lives for about 24 hours. So from the moment it's released, you have about 24 hours to have it be fertilized by sperm. So you really want to time that IUI when the egg is already in root. So when it's already been released sometime in that 24 hour period, that is the go zone. So you will hear people say, and, I, and I'm one of these people, okay, but sperm can live in the female reproductive tract for longer than one day. So you'd rather be early than too late. And that's a thousand percent true. Once the egg is done, the egg is done. Gate is closed. No more business. However, sperm can live in the reproductive tract, but it does live longer, we think, when it's from intercourse, because where does the sperm go and want to live? Sperm, as you remember, is in that ejaculate. It swims out and gets in the cervix, and the cervix has lots of little crypts and curvy little hideout places. So even though we will tell you sperm can live for up to five days in the female reproductive tract, that is true. We want to make so if you're trying to prevent pregnancy, I always say this again, you want to make sure that five days before you ovulate is when you start your abstinence period. Having sex five days before is not the best way to get pregnant. So same with IUI, we're bypassing the sperm's favorite hangout places. So we're putting that sperm right into the uterus. So there are less places for it to hang out. So really, really, we want the egg to already be released in order to make the best chance of success possible. And so that's why those of us in the field who are controlling, I'm raising my hand if you're watching this on video, is because I want to know that we're doing the IUI at the right time. So you'll almost never see me be like, just take some OPKs and come in the day after. I like to watch with ultrasound. I like to do a trigger shot. I like to time things. I like to control what I can control. Okay. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash AAW and click get started. Then use the code AAW at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5.
Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? but women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43%, and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Not everybody's like that, and that doesn't mean that if your doctor has a different plan, that they are different or it's worse plan than mine. We just all have different comfort zones. My comfort zone is the controlling one, and so knowing that is going to make us all feel better because that's how I roll. Now, something that is often done in IUI cycles, which has nothing to do with the insemination itself, is to start progesterone and support the pregnancy after. This has become some data shows that when you do ovulation induction, you may need extra support for the from the corpus luteum. And this is most often in injectable hormone cycles. So when you're using injectable hormones, you definitely want to be using progesterone after ovulation. I also use it in clomid femoris cycles. Not everybody does. And I don't usually do it in pure natural cycles if we're not doing a trigger or anything like that. Okay. One thing about IUIs is that you have to know why you're doing it. And the chance of success is really different based on the indication. That should make sense to us all. However, what happens is that humans can be really optimistic here. And we want to believe that the lowest tech treatment that's the cheapest will have the highest chance of success. So when we see a range of success, we tend to believe that we're going to be on the high end of it when that is not always the case. And so what this means, let's think through all the scenarios where we may do an IUI. So number one, first and foremost, highest chance of success is when there is no sperm available. So when we are using donor sperm or even, you know, 
partner sperm, for some reason, if we're unable to have intercourse, therefore no intercourse is no sperm, and now we're able to use sperm, that is going to be the highest chance of success because we are taking you to your age-related chance of success, which is usually around 15 to 25%, depending on your age. The older you are, the lower the chance of success. And so this is helpful to us because if you are young and you are a lesbian couple and you want to use donor sperm to try to get pregnant with IUI cycles, your chance of success could be, you know, 20, 25% if you're young. So that's way different than for some other couples. Okay, so your chance of success, another reason you could use IUI is for mild male factors. Now, this is really hard for some people to understand because we get sperm abnormalities and we want to believe that it will be completely corrected from an IUI. And again, an IUI, best players further down the field can't make them make the shot. So when we look at a semen analysis, we are looking at concentration, the amount of sperm that's in the ejaculate per milliliter, the motility, so how the sperm moves, and the morphology or the shape of the sperm. Really, IUI is best in cases of poor motility because we're helping it move. So not zero motility, but a little bit of a low motility. We still need enough sperm. I always like to say, even though it just takes one sperm, we really need an army. The sperm have to work together. So imagine that they're all working together to put enough force on the egg to crack that outer zona pellucida and let the one sperm inside. So you need millions and millions of sperm. Really what we like to see is a total modal sperm count of at least 10 million moving sperm. This is a calculation where you multiply volume times concentration times motility and you get a number and you want it at least 10 million. Otherwise, you're not going to have high enough sperm counts to have success with IUI most of the time. But when your counts are greater than 10 million total moving sperm, your chance of success with IUI for male factor is usually going to be somewhere between 3 to 10% per cycle. Lower if you're older or depending on the sperm parameters. But let's say at best 10% for male factor abnormalities, okay? That should say, hey, I've got low motility. I could do IUI. It is an acceptable treatment option. However, it means nine out of 10 times that somebody in that situation is doing an IUI. They are not going to be pregnant. And that's super important to know. When isolated teratospermia is the issue, that's a fancy word to mean shape. When the shape of the sperm is the issue, most likely IVF with ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, is often going to be the best case. And that's because this cleaning the ejaculate can't really distinguish the sperm from here's the normal morphologically shaped sperm and here are the abnormal ones and just put the normal ones in. It doesn't work like that. However, some of the normal sperm are more likely to survive depending on what type of processing for prep that you use. But I always counsel patients, hey, if the sperm counts normal except this morphology factor, we can try IUI at best 10% per month. However, IVF with ICSI is probably our best chance so depending on what our goals are, how old we are, we have got to keep that in mind. So another reason why we can do IUIs is when we start thinking about 
unexplained infertility. And unexplained infertility, least favorite topic here. Unexplained infertility means that you go through the basic workup. So you ovulate, you have normal sperm counts, and you have open fallopian tubes, yet you're still unable to get pregnant. Your chance of getting pregnant per month with unexplained infertility, if you've been trying for one year, is about 4 to 5% per cycle. And if you've been trying for two years, it's 2 to 3% per cycle. So that's just having sex, timing, intercourse again. First of all, none of those numbers are zero. So you could say, okay, great. I got this whole evaluation. Everything's normal. We fall into this crummy, unexplained infertility category. Yet we're going to keep on trying. That's what we choose to do. And that is a fine and acceptable option. It is easier to accept that option if you are young with high ovarian reserve because you have time. 5% per month is not zero, but it's not anytime soon, usually. However, it could also be this month that we're sitting in. We don't know. However, if you are older, if you want lots of kids or you have low ovarian reserve, just waiting is likely not the best option for you. Okay, so when we have unexplained infertility, our choices then really are twofold. One is controlled ovarian hyperstimulation with IUI. Essentially, this is purposefully over ovulating somebody, trying to get into a goal of two to three eggs and combining that with an IUI. If we go back to my sports field analogy, I like to think of this one, like you take Clomid or Femora or injectable hormones, and then you can get two or three eggs. So now if you imagine our soccer field, we have multiple goals down on one end of the field, and then we take our best players and put them further down the field, like with IUI, this is now improving the odds. More eggs, closer sperm, hopefully we can get the odds in our favor. You're not treating anything when you do controlled ovarian hyperstimulation plus IUI for unexplained infertility. It's an odds game. So in that scenario, the very best chance of success is usually going to, it's going to be about eight to 10% per cycle when you do that. And so similarly, not higher than 10%. So that just means nine out of 10 people who are choosing to do that for unexplained infertility are not going to be pregnant with IUI. Not zero. Could you be one out of 10? Certainly. Do I have babies who have been born from patients who have unexplained infertility with using IUI? I do, of course. They're, they wouldn't be here without it. So it's not a worthless treatment option. It just means you have to be prepared for what's ahead and know what you're doing. We also know that, you know, chance of success per month kind of plateaus from cycles four to six and then drops off. So typically when we're doing this for unexplained infertility, we don't do more than three cycles. When it's for male factor, we can consider up to six. And so it really depends on what your doctor is going to tell you based on the indication and why you're doing it. Important things as the older you are, this may not be a good option for you. The FORTT trial, F-O-R-T-T, looked at women who were 38 and older with unexplained infertility, and they put them into two groups looking at controlled ovarian hyperstimulation with IUI versus going right to IVF. And the group that went right to IVF saved money overall and saved time. And that's because most of the women in the IUI group did not get pregnant, ended up having to go on to IVF anyway. And so you spent the time and the money of those IUI cycles compounded on. Also, there's another trial called the FAST trial, which compared looking at ovulation induction with oral medications like Clomid Fomara versus with a combination 
of injectable hormones and actually showed no benefit of the injectable hormones. So most of us are not really doing that as a treatment option first line. There's always reasons why that makes sense for an individual patient, but those are good questions to ask your doctor. So when we start thinking about IUI, we first want to make sure that we have all the data that we need to make a good decision. And so that means that you have had tests to determine your ovarian reserve, you understand if your fallopian tubes are open, and you've had a semen analysis done to really look at the sperm and all the different parameters. You want to understand what your chance of success is with your age and those other factors combined and how many cycles you're willing to do. We also, if we're talking about donor sperm where you're purchasing sperm, we have to take into account the cost of sperm each time that you do an IUI. A few things that I always get asked about is should you have sex before and after the IUI? I usually do, like when I trigger patients, have them have intercourse the day of the trigger. So then there's a two-day pause before we get the sample for the IUI. Sex afterward, usually like that same day or the next day, if they want to, is fine. But otherwise, I always say sex is recreational. So it's if you want to have it, go for it, but don't feel like you have to be having intercourse afterward. As far as laying flat, we do have our patients lay for about 10 minutes in office after the IUI. Not that that's proven necessarily to help the sperm get anywhere, but if more than anything, it's just a calming moment so that we can kind of hopefully lower our stress hormones down during this really important time. I tell my patients after IUI not to have their heart rate get over 150 beats per minute. I want all that good blood supply going to the uterus and getting oxygen there and nourishing there. No alcohol afterward, up to one cup of coffee or caffeine a day. Um, otherwise, I'm always encouraging healthy habits throughout the whole time you're trying to conceive, including as much plants as you can eat, vitamin supplements, taking your prenatal vitamin, avoiding toxins in the environment and smoking, no alcohol after an IUI, and just trying to overall make sure that you're controlling everything you can control in this cycle. The number one mistake I see couples do is do way too many IUIs without having any understanding of their chance of success. So when I talk to them and I ask, well, what were you expecting your probability of success to be? And it may be a situation where it was very, very minimal, yet the patient was never really aware of that. So before you get too deep into the journey, understanding where your boundaries are, having appropriate expectations, again, 10% is not by any means zero, but it's not 100 and so knowing that from the beginning, especially when you're comparing it to IVF success, which can be usually around 60 to 70% of a live birth rate with a genetically normal embryo, those are really, really different. So make sure you're making the best decisions for you from the get-go. Also, sometimes sperm parameters can be improved by seeing a urologist by taking medications. It does take a while to see an improvement. So it can take up to three to six months to see a full improvement. And so at very, very low levels, it may not be worth waiting this time unless the female partner is young with great ovarian reserve and time is not quite a concern for us. Also, healthy lifestyle habits for the male partner can make a difference also. So I recommend, you know, low sugar, lots of antioxidants, plant-based eating, a daily multivitamin, making sure it has zinc, selenium, vitamin D, C, and E. There's some extra stuff you can add on if the sperm parameters are actually low. And then avoiding smoking, cigarettes, marijuana, limiting alcohol use, and just the same stuff with the toxins as we recommend for egg quality. 
Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast on IUI. It's frequently asked about. I do them all the time. I just think counseling and understanding expectations is crucial if this is the way that you're choosing to go. So as always, I'm asking you, what is your goal? And make sure that IUI suits where you're trying to go. Ask questions to your doctor. Make sure you understand your personalized chance of success and understand the long-term game plan. I'm going to have future episodes coming up, diving in a little bit more on IVF and InvoCell to kind of answer some of those other treatment options. Thank you guys for listening. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. The YouTube channel is Natalie Crawford MD as well. And this is the As a Woman podcast. I love hearing the questions that you have, any suggestions for future episodes, and I love every time you give me a thumbs up, subscribe, leave a review. All of that means so, so, so much. So thank you. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.